the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Hello, my name is Richard Moore, and this is the second part of our review of the classics and one-day races from 2021. Last week, Lionel Burney, Daniel Freib, and I looked back on the build-up to Milan San Remo, and then that first monument of the season and the cobbled classics that followed. A little reminder that this episode is episode two in the series that we're calling Annus Galaxicus. Blame Daniel for that. And next week, we'll be looking back on the Grand Tours and Stage Races, the week after that, we'll be doing a press conference episode. Please send us your questions by email to contact at thecyclingpodcast.com and do please send us an audio file because we do like to hear your voice. While I'm talking press conferences, Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally are also doing a press conference for their Christmas episode of Service Course, our tech podcast. Send your questions also by audio file, please, to the same address, but mark it for service course. Do not, whatever you do, send tech questions to me, Lionel, or Daniel. Back to business. We'll be hearing in this episode from Tom Pidcock, Alan Piper, Jonathan Vauters, and Tom Squinge. But we take up the story of the classics with Lionel giving us the latest on Peter Sagan after the recent news of a spot of bother he was in in Monaco in April. News that only came to wider attention in the last couple of weeks, though it was the same day as Liège Baston Liège. Anyway... Here's Lionel. Well, I mean, this year, Peter Sagan's, uh, it's not been an Annus Galacticus for him, has it? It's been an Annus, uh, what, was the, what was the phrase about the, the royal family? Annus Horribilis. Horribilis. Yeah, it's not been a great year for Sagan, has it? Uh, he tested positive for COVID back at the Bora Hansgrohe training camp on Gran Canaria right at the start of the year. I think that was uh, early February. That meant he missed the opening weekend of Het Nieuwsblad and Kerner Brussels Kerner. He was fourth at Milan San Remo and then 15th at the Tour of Flanders, but really a peripheral figure um, this year. And then on the day of Liège-Bastogne-Liège, which he wasn't intending to ride anyway, um, he was actually in trouble with the police for breaking curfew um, COVID curfew in Monaco and was uh, was arrested. And uh, that case has only come to light uh, in the last couple of days, hasn't it? He has been fined for breaking the curfew and also for struggling with a police officer while uh, the officers were trying to apprehend him. Um, he admitted that he was under the influence of alcohol during the incident as well, so not his finest moment. But the juxtaposition of that um, happening on the same day as Liège-Bastogne-Liège, a race that I think we all anticipated he would have a really good chance of winning since they've changed the finish and run it back into the centre of Liège with a, with a, a sprinter's finish uh, with all of the climbing that goes before it. Um, this week he was actually in Argentina, um, a guest of Boca Juniors, the football club, wearing Diego Maradona's old number 10 shirt with Sagan on the back. Uh, he'll make his season debut for his new team, Total Energies, in Argentina at the uh, Tour of de San Juan next uh, I think that's the end of January, isn't it? Um, but we we do like to write riders off, perhaps a little prematurely. We've done it with a few people in the past. I don't want to frame the question quite so negatively as to say, is Peter Sagan finished? Rather put a positive on it. And can a change of team revitalise him, rejuvenate him as a force in the classics 
Uh, or do you think he's slipped too far behind the likes of Van Aert, Van der Poel, Alaphilippe and perhaps Pogacar when it comes to the biggest one-day races? I really don't know what to expect from him going forward. I think perversely we've started thinking about this season in terms of individuals and the classic season in terms of individuals, these... Um, as I said before, these sort of Marvel comic book heroes, um, Van der Poel, Van Aert. And what we ended up learning or seeing again was the the value of the collective. And, you know, I think De Kernic Quick Quickstep would be happier with their current kind of configuration of, of, of well, different options than they would be with one Van Aert or one Van der Poel. We saw, you know, numerous times that, that them being able to play and different cards benefited them. And think about Sagan next year. Well, he's actually joining a, a pretty decent classics team or a team, a classics team with some potential, I would suggest, with them. Um, the criminally underrated Tony Turgis in there. Um, Anthony yeah. Turgis, who was one of the sort of unsung, unsung heroes or stars of the Cobble Classics. And they've got a number of, well, Edval Barsenhagen there, is there as well. And they've got a number of, of good classics riders and who knows that could be that could be the solution for Sagan I mean there was around about the time we were talking about or that Sagan had that incident in April there were rumours of him joining De Kernic Quickstep and Patrick mm. Lefebvre saying that um, well they'd had conversations but inconclusive or unsuccessful negotiations yeah I mean uh, Daniel Oss has gone with him Nicky Terpstra is, is still there apparently because um, Sagan wanted him to stay uh, Chris Lawless is potentially a, a decent classics rider as well um, but I think <clears throat> alarm bells will have been ringing in uh, Jean-René Bernardo's office in uh, uh, in the Vendée uh, at, at the news that came out this week about Sagan and, and the trouble he had been in it's not great for any sponsor to well, have you would hope that he would have known yeah yeah that's a good point it did happen a long a long time ago um, but um should say Sagan Sagan has also disputed some of the details that have been reported about how the incident unfolded uh, and came about but he has he has been fined by the authorities and he has apologized yeah but you know it, it's not a great um it's not a great look is it and uh, when riders or athletes um get themselves in this kind of bother it, it can be symptomatic of a, a bigger a bigger problem I don't know I mean Sagan went on to the Giro and rode pretty well he he won a stage and he rode a similar Giro to the one he rode the previous year really where um he was you know in, in decent enough form to contend most days and he did get his stage win um I mean I I've said it so many times but I do think Sagan will win Milan Sanremo when he's no longer a favorite to win Milan Sanremo um and I think he will still be able to contend in some of these races and and ironically with the Van Arts, Van der Poels, Alaphilippe's um, occupying the kind of favourite status. It does create perhaps an opportunity for Sagan in, in some of these races. When he's underrated, that's maybe when he'll have a better chance of winning another one. But I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think there are, there are questions about that as well. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. 
Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for supporting the cycling podcast. They came on board earlier this year as our title sponsors, and we're delighted that they've chosen to support us. If you'd like to find out more about the Super Sapiens continuous glucose monitoring technology, go to supersapiens.com or go to the Ruler website and read an article written by Nick Buska. Now, as it turns out, Nick is one of the guest editors for our Best Friends special which is an episode or in fact a series of episodes that's being produced now for Friends of the Podcast, which will go out between Christmas and New Year. I'm not going to spoil the subject of what that's about, but Nick in his uh, day job as a journalist was at Ruler Live recently, where he spoke to the founder and CEO of Super Sapiens, Phil Sutherland, who has been on the podcast talking about Super Sapiens earlier this year. But Nick's article is a real deep dive into the genesis of the Super Sapiens app and the technology, where the idea came from and what drove Phil Sutherland to force it into being, really. The technology was already there, but how could it be adapted so that it would be of use initially to the type 1 diabetics on the Novo Nordisk team and then for anyone who wants to monitor their glucose levels in order to perform at their best level Uh, we'll put a link to that article in the show notes if you want to read it well listen chaps let's move on to liege baston liege because i mentioned earlier terreno adriatico we'd seen uh, a performance from pogacar that probably didn't get the praise and the attention that it deserved because it was sort of overshadowed by these spectacular individual performances from Alaphilippe in, in a sprint, from uh, Van der Poel in a sprint and a solo breakaway, and from Van Aert across the week. But Pogacar just quietly and very effectively won the race. Um, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, <clears throat> he went close last year, didn't he? He was in that Talking group. Talking overlooking things, Rich, you overlooked the other Ardennes classic. For Julien Alaphilippe, est-ce qu'il va réussir à passer? Oui, il va réussir à passer Julien Alaphilippe, un duel jusqu'au bout. Flesh Wallon, of course. Yeah, so I did. Well, he didn't start that, Pogacar. His team didn't start that because of a COVID case. Um, but Julian Alaphilippe won uh, Flesh Wallone again, didn't he? He is the new Alejandro Valverde when it comes to Flesh Wallone. He is another edition of Flesh, which sort of bore out what we say every year that it is. Unfortunately, incredibly predictable. And once someone sort of figures out the formula, which Alaphilippe has, I mean, you obviously need the legs as well. Um, it's very difficult to, to beat whoever is the strongest guy, who, you know, who has who has worked out where to to kick and, and how to time their attack we saw that this year with Primoz Roglic didn't mm. we a, uh, a sort of relative newbie in Flesh Wallon and probably well it was the murder who was ripe for Roglification wasn't it and I think it might well be Roglified in the coming years but he's, he probably got his effort wrong and Alaphilippe came around him just looking ahead um, final footnote on Flesh uh, Tom Pidcock was sixth and he would be my bet as the next guy the next sort of master murder who rider the thing about Alaphilippe and the Ardennes is that everyone expects him to win Liège-Bastogne-Liège. But it, it does feel like one of those races that he will win sooner rather than later. And of course, as soon as we start saying that, um, you know, that, that he finds different ways uh, not to win it. Second this year to Tadej Pogacar. And I don't know about you chaps, but 
particularly from the performance at Tirreno Adriatico, which at the time he was kind of off to the side when we were when we were weighing up Alaphilippe Van Aert and Van der Poel. Pogacar was in Tirreno Adriatico kicking off his stage racing season. The focus would all be on the Tour de France. And of course, we get to the end of the season and not only did he win Liège, Bastogne Liège, but he added a second monument, Il Lombardia, which in the context of the history of the sport is you know really significant. I mean, it puts him in a bracket with uh, Fausto Coppi and Eddie Merckx as the only riders to win two monuments plus a Grand Tour. Uh, in Coppi's case, he won the Giro and the Tour, as well as Milan San Remo and Il Lombardia, or the Giro di Lombardia as it was then in 1949. And Eddie Merckx won the Vuelta and the Giro, Paris-Roubaix and Liège-Bastogne-Liège in 1973. And, you know, I think we're in danger of overlooking the significance of uh, Pogacar's um, versatility and uh, potential danger in all of these big one-day races, just because of the, you know, it proves the engine that he's got over that distance. And when I look back at Liège-Bastogne-Liège and how he rode it, it wasn't just him kind of freelancing. UAE team Emirates were, you know, really supportive of him. They had riders in good positions at key points. They weren't as showy as Ineos Grenadiers, who really massed at the at the front um you know, for, for long stretches of the race. And, and of course, Richard Carapaz was off the front for um, what, what at the time watching. I thought, well, that's a done deal. Carapaz is going to win from this position. Uh, but Pogacar got himself into the final five rider group, sat at the back going into the final few hundred metres and came from behind to beat, you know, Woods, OK, not the most noted sprinter on the flat, but, but no slouch. But then, you know, Valverde was in there as well and Alaphilippe, as well, who I thought was was nailed on to win it. I mean, really impressive stuff from Pogacar, especially when you consider, you know, he punctured with 65 kilometres to go just as things were starting to warm up significantly. Can we hear from Jonathan Vauters, uh, the, the boss at EF um, Education Nipple, who spoke a bit about the way that Liège-Bastogne-Liège was raced, but also about Pogacar in particular. I found his comments on Pogacar and the way that he won this race fascinating. You know, I don't know. Pogachar is something special. I mean, I, I remember it watching Liège Bastogne Liège this year, and you know, the last ten k, right? And they're coming down to that sprint, um, and most people, most of your pundits are saying, you know, Alaphilippe will win the sprint. He's the fastest guy there, and yada yada yada, right? And I remember thinking in the back of my head, and I, and I was going to put it out on Twitter, but you know, whenever you put these things out on Twitter, you get so many people that throw rotten banana peels and tomatoes at you, so I, I was like, yeah. But I remember thinking, no, Pogachar is going to win. Alaphilippe's the better sprinter, but Pogachar is a champion of his generation, and the champion of his generation will figure out a way to win. It's like Bernard, you know, winning on the Roubaix velodrome, you know, shouldn't have ever happened, but it did because he was the champion of his generation. And that's kind of the feeling Pogachar has to me. I mean, there are a lot of things that can derail that, you know, immense success. So very young. I mean, you know, one day he's going to wake up and be like, gosh, you know, I have $20 million in the bank account. I don't really want to go ride in the rain today. And, you know, and maybe when that day comes, then, Pogachar is not going to win any races anymore. But um, but the, the feeling to me that he has right now is that he is a, a, the, the champion of his generation. It was interesting um, listening to Vauters talking about Pogacar and the way that he, 
he won. Uh, the way he figured out how to win um, Liege, Baston Liege. And there was a sort of almost an inevitability about it, even though he was up against Alaphilippe, who you would have fancied in a, in a sprint from that size of group. He said it was like Eno winning in Roubaix. He, he, he figured it out because that's what the champion of a, a generation does. Um, and against the odds, seemingly, he was able to to win that race, to pick it off. And it, and it did sort of complete a bit of unfinished business because he may well have won in 2020 had he not been cut up uh, by Alaphilippe in the sprint. The move for which Alaphilippe was relegated in that race actually cost Pogacar his chance of, of winning. Um, so there was a sort of a bit of unfinished business there a sort of, and a sort of killer instinct um, carried him to the win there. But his positioning... You know his his cool coming into the finish it was he did everything perfectly and it wasn't even really all that close in the end. I think another of the threads of the twenty twenty one season, both in terms of classics and in the Grand Tours, or certainly the Tour de France, which we'll talk about um, next week, was the growing confidence, the growing cohesion of UAE, and often. You know, on the back of, of difficulties, struggles and mistakes, you know, just before Liège-Bastogne-Liège, they'd had the experience of the Tour of the Basque Country where they'd fallen apart on the last day. They'd had Brandon McNulty in the leader's jersey. Pogacar had won a stage there, beaten Primoz Roglic uphill. And yeah, it all came apart on the final day. And as you say, Lionel, um, just a, a few days later or a couple of weeks later, at Liège-Bastogne-Liège, there was a noticeable kind of improvement or perhaps because... You know, there was no confusion that day. They knew they were riding for Pogacar. They weren't hedging their bets between Pogacar and another rider. But, you know, they, they rode pretty well. And, and that was going to be the case at the Tour de France as well. We saw them, you know, start shakily and and get better and look pretty solid by the end of the race. And, you know, we talked also about the potential for this season to be... Um, well, for, for someone to go scorched earth and for someone to emerge as the new kind of demagogue and we thought we'd be talking about Van Aert or Van der Poel in terms of the classics but um, Pogacar's win at Liège was the first hint really that perhaps he was going to be the rider we would be talking about in those terms by the end of the year. We heard from Tom Scoynes of Trek Segafredo, who was one of only a large handful of riders who started four of the five monuments this year. No one started all five, although he did point out that he had ridden all five in a 12-month period because he took part in the Tour of Flanders last October. In our conversation, he made the point that the level is now so high because riders are rarely doing races as preparation for other races, and especially not the monuments. And this was something that I also spoke to Jonathan Vorters about. Vorters is the founder and manager of the team that's now known as EF Education Nippo, and I asked him what sort of trends we're seeing in the way that World Tour events are raced. And I also ran past him my own homemade theory, uh, which, to be fair, you two guys have mentioned before in the podcast in one form or another. But I'm happy to take the credit or perhaps take the blame for it here. Well, the margins have gotten tighter and tighter and tighter in, in the world tour. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the difference between the sort of the best guys and the worst guys, the margins are much smaller than in my era of racing, certainly. Um, but even more so, well, even 
looking at the beginning of, of sort of the, the Tour de France lifespan of this team or, the, or my managerial career, either my racing career or my managerial career, you know, the, the differences between top riders and second tier riders or whatever you want to call them are um, much smaller. And those gaps have continued to tighten and tighten and tighten and tighten um, over the years. Uh, and, and you can see that, you know, in, in the results from time trials, that the, that the gaps in between riders are, are much smaller than, than they used to be. Um, and, you know, there's a whole host of, of uh, reasons for that. I mean, it's, you know, it's better training, better nutrition, better equipment. Just everyone constantly pushing the envelope really hard. I mean, the marginal gains thing, well, you know, every single team in the world tour is scratching away at every single possible marginal gain out there. So they, 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 the, the mar- everyone's pushing marginal gains. And so that means the differences between one athlete and another are, are marginal. What that does to the overall race dynamic is, is there's just a greater momentum to the Peloton in general, because, you know, if you have a, I don't know, a Peloton of 180 riders and, and 50 of them are, top level in perfect condition, ready to race, uh, honed in for that day. And then, you know, 50 of them are there to help out those 50 guys. And they're, they're pretty good too. They're just not as talented, but then you got 80 guys that kind of just showed up because they were told that they had to show up to, to make up the roster number. Right. And I feel like that, that represented a good portion of races 15 years ago. Nowadays, not so much. You know, guys do fewer days of racing than we used to by a considerable margin. Um, I think probably the average number of days a rider does is probably down 30% from from 10 or 15 years ago, um, if not more. And everyone's showing up to each and every race, you know, focused and ready to go and in, in a very refined condition. So you don't sort of have 80 riders that are just being dragged along anymore um and so that means there are more people to attack there are more options for breakaways once the breakaway gets off there are more teams that have the capacity to chase the breakaway down there are more teams that can cause a split in the crosswind there are more teams that can push the pace on an uphill so the races have a yeah just more momentum to them in general like it's it's a it's a you know as opposed to sort of a medium-sized snowball it now most races are an enormous snowball rolling down a hill um, because everyone packed into that snowball is ready to kill. And we're seeing, you know, racing kicking off earlier in stages and even in one day races and even in long races. I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, I think back to the long, long stage in the tour to Le Cruzo that Mohoric won uh, in the end. I mean, he, he was away um, a, a lot of that day. And then the World Championship yeah. road race, which I sat watching thinking, do these guys know that they're still... 190 kilometers to go um <laughs> yeah they, they have they made a terrible miscalculation and i've just been sort of speculating and and, and hypothesizing and, and just talking to a, to a few people what, what's your um, what's your reason for that i i've got an amateur theory but um i'd like to hear your reason first and then you can well, shoot my I, amateur theory down. you are right i mean the world championships road race that that was impressive i mean that was it was an impressive race all day long. Yeah, it's just what I just—it's just what I just said about momentum. There are more riders that are, you know, perfectly prepared for each and every event that they show up to. The percentage of guys that are showing up to a race, quote unquote, just for training or quote unquote to prepare for the next race, that mentality has gone away. 
And so each and every race of the calendar all year long is, is much more competitive um, than it used to be. So my hodgepodge theory, I mean, it's not just mm. my hodgepodge theory, but a few people have, uh, I've talked to a few people about this, is that the riders know um, what they're actually capable of. They know what their ceiling limit is much more. They're much more in tune with it now than they had been before because of the, right. all, all the training data, all the racing data. And that they're learning, you know, bit by bit, year by year. And the youngsters coming in are are, are they're already, um, you know, lots of young riders are coming in, having basically trained and lived like pros as juniors and under 23s. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. and so they're not scared of there, there being a ceiling that they're going to suddenly crash their heads into. And so it's kind of counterintuitive for me being the sort of um, the generation of the, oh, no, the, the data and the remote control and the, uh, um, you know, the, the, um, the numbers is going to make for robotic, one-dimensional, predictable racing is actually, I feel, on a lot of occasions, having a different effect. No, no, I mean, absolutely. But, but that, for instance, speaks to better training and better nutrition. I mean, the fueling that our riders do during races is totally different than what I did during races. I mean, you know, when I was on Credit Agricole, we were getting, you know, tart de pomme, like little apple cakes and little sweeties here and there. And, and you know, and the, now the nutrition is highly refined. Riders intake a much higher amount of carbohydrate per hour than, than we did as riders. And, you know, and a lot of it is being, being consumed via liquids. Um, so they actually can ride at a higher intensity for a longer period of time because they're being fueled in a way that we were not. And that's made... That's made a big difference. Also, speaking to your point, you know, in my era, there was an old adage that always said racing is the best training. In some ways, I agree with that. There's certainly an aspect to that, that, that racing introduces this randomness that you have to, you know, you have to deal with the random nature of it, that, that, that you have to, you know, fight your way through the peloton and you have to sprint up a hill when you weren't expecting it. And you, I mean, and so in a lot of ways, racing is the best training, but because of power meters, we're able to replicate the effort or the, the highly dynamic, highly modulated effort that racing requires. And when I say that, I mean, when you're out just riding in the wind by yourself, you tend to sort of plod along at a very even power output, say 250 watts. Maybe you go up a hill and it's 300, you go down the hill and it's 200. But, you know, it's pretty linear. In a race, you're on the wheel at 50k an hour your power output is popping around from zero to 800 watts constantly just bing 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 up and down up and down and that highly dynamic type of training we'll call it that that's being in the peloton um before power meters i don't think we totally knew how to replicate that in training uh motor pacing to a degree and and actually we we use motor pacing much more than we used to um, in training. But nowadays, without dragging a rider to a race that he may or may not want to go to and may or may not be fit to compete in and may or may not be healthy to compete in, um, instead of doing that, we can, we can exactly replicate the demands that are needed to be competitive in a race at home training in a more controlled environment. And over time, 
being able to control all the externalities of the training, i.e., like you don't have to travel as much because you're not going to a race. So, you're, you know, you're able to really control your nutrition because you're not at a race. You're able to eliminate the random factor of racing and, and really control your efforts. Over time, our ability to, to basically meet or exceed the demands of racing in training and do it in a more controlled environment leads to greater performance. I also asked voters what we, and by we, I mean all TV spectators who are watching cycling from the comfort of their armchairs, get wrong when we're evaluating or analysing races these days. The first thing that comes to mind is when I hear people being critical of, you know, or, or, I don't know, liege based on liege comes to mind, but they're critical, or even in the Tour de France, critical of, oh, the race is boring because the riders aren't being aggressive like they used to be aggressive early on. You know, they used to, um, the race used to open up early on. Well, that's just not true. What you're seeing on television, what what looks to be, you know, in Liège-Bastogne-Liège going over La Redoute, what looks to be a very tightly packed peloton that no one is really attacking, if you took that same climbing speed up La Redoute or not, sorry, not really loud to do, excuse me, Stoku, the Stoku climb, which is about 100 kilometers out. If you took that same climbing speed back 20 years ago and introduced that, it would not be a tightly packed peloton going up the Stoku. It would be in bits and pieces because the margins between the athletes were much more spread out. And so then the race appears to be more exciting. It appears to have opened up earlier on. It appears to be more aggressive when quite frankly, none of those things are true. Um, I, I see a lot of people saying, well, in the Giro and the Vuelta, we get a lot more breakaways in the Tour de France. It, it tends to be, you know, not quite as many breakaways and, and just more tightly controlled. Well, there's a reason for that. The Tour de France is more competitive. Every team sends their best team to the Tour de France. And so the probability of a breakaway getting up the road is much lower partially because you've got all these GC teams that literally have, they've got seven guys dedicated to just pulling flat out to keep one guy in position at the, at the front of the race. Well, when you've got seven, eight teams pulling flat out at the front with no other purpose than just keeping one guy in position to avoid crashes, it's very difficult for a breakaway to go anywhere. But don't tell me that it's because the, the, the race is boring or the riders are lazy. No, it's because the physiological median is much higher than it used to be. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Noom, which is an app I've been using over the past two and a half months to help me lose some weight. If you'd like to sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support to help lose some weight for good, go to noom.com slash cycle. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash cycle. When I started with Noom, I really didn't want to go on a diet at all, but I realized after stepping on the scales and seeing that I was over 90 kilograms that I had to do something, especially when I went to the NHS body mass index calculator and put in my height and weight and saw that I was well over the healthy range and... Well, frankly, it was becoming apparent that just cycling and running wasn't going to help shift some of that unwanted weight. I needed to change some of my eating habits too. Anyone who's familiar with cognitive behavioural therapy 
will recognise some of the techniques that Noom uses. It's nudged me towards healthier and more sustainable habits and away from unhelpful ones. And really, it's changed my habits quite significantly, but almost without me really noticing. The crucial thing for me is that no food is totally off limits. I can still eat some of the things that I like. It's just that I have to maintain a healthy balance over the course of a week or a fortnight uh, so that I don't uh, eat too many of the wrong things and see the weight creep back on again there are also little lessons which reinforce some of the healthy habits and by weighing in every day and weighing some of my meals um, I've educated myself on what a healthy plate of food should look like rather than just piling on my plate until it looks right to me because basically that's where the unnecessary calories were coming from Um, unnecessary snacks at the wrong times of day and uh, evening meals that had just become too large so all of the benefits for me have been very positive. So since mid-September, I have lost 15 kilograms. I reached my target weight of 75 kilograms this week. And crucially, when I went to the NHS BMI calculator, I am now back in the healthy range. I'm still towards the upper end, uh, but I'm quite happy with where I am now. Uh, I don't want to lose any more weight at the moment. I might try to lose another kilo or two um, next year in the run-up to summer. But at the moment, I'm really happy happy with where I am. I feel better. um, I'm running more quickly. I'm sleeping better and I feel healthier. And uh, that's the key, really. I just feel better having lost uh, weight that I was carrying around, which I didn't really need to. I should just say that if you have any health conditions or you're considering losing a significant amount of weight, that you should consult a medical professional before using the Noom app or any weight loss program. But as I say, my goals were to get back within that NHS healthy range for the body mass index. And now I've done that um, I'm just going to use the Noom app to just maintain that weight uh, rather than looking to trim off any more but crucially I don't want to just pile it all back on over Christmas. Well chaps we're going to move on and hear from Tom Squinge and Tom Pidcock soon but before we do um, let's finish Buffalo's classics quiz shall we take you back to Tour of Flanders which rider was disqualified at Tour of Flanders for giving a child a bidon? It was it was a Groupama rider. Final, you look like you're you look like you're typing, and it wasn't a Groupama rider. No, it wasn't. It was a right I for think French it was team. An, yeah, it was an Agitoire La Mondiale rider. Agitoire Citroen. Yeah, almost yeah. there. Um, it was. It I'll give you a nice. clue. Give you a clue. Greg Van Avermaet. Oh, it was him. No, it wasn't. That Greg was Van just Avermaet. a clue. It was. It was his best mate. Oliver Narsen. Michael Scharr. Oh, yes. And that came just, that, that was the first, that, that rule had come into, into play on the 1st of April. Just before that, we'd seen Dylan Van Baal discard some rubbish in Dwarsdorf Landren, uh, an offence for which he would have presumably been disqualified just a day later. Um, who was disqualified at Liège-Bastogne-Liège? A prominent rider, a favourite, a contender, a rider who might have won the race. You've mentioned him already, Lionel. Oh, Richard Carapaz. Yep. He also fell yeah. foul of the new rules, didn't he? Um, for adopting the uh, the, the tuck right. on the bike. That's yeah. right. Gosh, which, yeah. 
which Paris-Roubaix podium finisher had never previously finished a monument? Never previously finished a monument. Uh, uh, we're talking men's Paris-Roubaix. Yeah. So Colbrelli and Matthew Van der Poel both had. And so the third rider on the podium, I've completely forgotten. <laughs> Dear me. You're doing really well, guys. It this was. is brilliant. It was um, uh, Florian Vermeersch. How could you forget, Daniel? Oh, your your yes. favourite at the Vuelta. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. I can tell you that all three women on the podium at Pyro Bay had never previously finished Pyro Bay. Uh, well, excellent, <laughs> excellent. I mean, well, that's the sort uh, of, that's the sort of knowledge <laughs> and trivia well, listen, that we're we're known for. Hang on, Florian Vermeersch, the the mayor of wherever. Yeah, yeah, the mayor, which is now on yeah. his Wikipedia page, I think. It is, it is. The nickname that you came up with. Which um, you then stole just, because we did a re-record. <laughs> correct. Yeah, um, I did. Yeah. I did. We're not going to talk about Pyro Bay so much because we talked about it very recently, mm. didn't we, in our podcast from Pyro Bay. Um, but we can obviously look back now on the, the classic season and the five monuments. And a question that, that bubbles away is can anyone right win all five monuments uh, philip gilbert is the current rider closest to that just missing milan san remo of course but um there's a real sense i think that that some of these riders could win all five monuments and lionel you put that question to trek segafredo rider tom squeens and the reason for asking him was that he's one of a few riders who's ridden four out of the five monuments this year it is definitely a challenge to do all five not just because they are very different and require different abilities or different characteristics but also because the first one is in march and the last one is in october and yeah you have quite a few i guess you have all, most of them until end of april but it's still quite a long stretch to do them all but also you got to remember that nowadays people don't really go to do races, they go to race races and really be competitive. So I think uh, that's maybe one of the things that has changed in the last years that people don't show up to races to like, oh yeah, ride around, get fit. But uh, when they show up to races, they show up to race and even more so when it's uh, a monument. I mean, as, as spectators, we know the character of the races are different. Obviously, the, the pave from Paris-Roubaix is different to the cobblestones of uh, the Tour of Flanders even. But as, as an athlete, are the physical demands radically different? Not radically different, but uh, there are definitely differences, not just in like the way that, I mean, the riders that excel, but also the way that races are raced. I mean, there's definitely similarities where, for example, both Flanders, Roubaix, Amstel, really fighting for position is really key because the roads get small, the important parts are really on narrow roads, so you always have to fight. So I think that's why actually we see in Amstel uh, sometimes guys like Sagan or even our, our team, Jasper, has tried it a few times because it is kind of a similar, more similar race than maybe Flesh and Liège to the cobbled races. And if you look on the other spectrum, pretty much, I mean, it's not that you don't have to fight for a position, but the fight is a lot less key for races like Lombardy or Liège, Boston Liège, where it's pretty big roads, 
it's mostly just huge climbs and uh yeah at the end of the day it's more of a survival race than uh, a race where you have to fight every single sector if you had to rank them from the easiest to the hardest i mean i'm using the word easiest in inverted commas here but as a as a day on the bike um you know which, which do you which do you think is the, the easiest up to the hardest of the five monuments well the easiest day on the bike i think would be milan san remo i think most will agree just because i mean you're riding yeah it's very long and distance wise but at the same time time wise sometimes it's shorter than others uh depending on the wind and whatnot so it is a long day in the saddle but at the same time you're in the group and that always helps to move things along and the only difficulties are at the end so you can always even if you're on a bad day you can always finish let's say but yeah on the next one i feel like yeah that's hard hard, hard to say which ones are what would be the five five step differences but um I think the hardest is probably a battle between Roubaix and Flanders just because the cobbles really take a toll on you and you're more likely to start pushing your bike in one of those races than in any other race for sure. Got you. So if, if, I'm, if I'm filling in the gaps there, we're, we're kind of saying Milan-San Remo, then maybe Lombardia and Liège-Baston-Liège kind of grouped together as, as a similar type of challenge and then, then Flanders and Roubaix similar to one another but perhaps another another half level up maybe and does your you know if you had to pick a favorite and least favorite not not rank them um one to five but a favorite and least favorite does that correlate to the difficulty for you actually yeah i think so um close oh i mean definitely san remo is probably my least favorite one even though last time i did it we won so that kind of uh it's hard to say that it's my least favorite but um yeah, just San Remo is kind of, I think, also from a rider's perspective, is kind of the most boring one just because the action really is in the last bit and there's not much you can do to change that the way the course is. But I really actually enjoy Lombardy and uh, I really enjoy both Flanders and Roubaix. I think I would actually pick Flanders over Roubaix. So maybe I would say Lombardy and Flanders are the top two and then Roubaix and then Liège. Well, here's Alan Piper again talking about Tadej Pogacar, who might be an outside bet to win all five monuments over the course of his career. Who knows? Oh, I think you know. You know, last couple of years he's, he's proved his his caliber. You know, his first year three stages in the Vuelta and, and and podium. Second year, so many races that he won, and then also capping it off with the Tour de France. This year's just gone to another level of of confidence and the team being built around him and. His, his carefree way of racing as well and, and his, his persona. I just think, um, as I said before, you know, things, things become normal and, and you know, we, we want to see people reach, reach, reach the heights. But I think today is just a force that's going to be reckoned with for, for years to come, hopefully. Um, that, you know, he's, he's spared of, you know, injury or, or, or bad luck. But I think, you know, he's a force to be reckoned with and, and hopefully his, 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 his wins and his, his uh, successes will be, you know, will be, will be, you know, valued and seen in that light, you know, not overlooked as the norm, you know, maybe a little bit like Alaphilippe, you know. But, you know, even Mauro Venni said in the press last week, doesn't make a difference if you win the two or three or four times. I mean, that's Maravigny talking about, you know, for those of us, <laughs> some of us think a different way and it, it does make a difference, you know. Um, going down in the books is winning five tours, you know, there's not many guys that have done that, you know. So 
that's something uh, you know, something that you make yourself immortal with, more or less. But I mean, his performances in Liège, Baston Liège, and then Il Lombardia. I mean, you know, we, I don't think I thought of him as a, a classics type rider before seeing those performances. Today uh, has a new, unique ability of of being able to climb, probably the, one of one of the best climbers in the world. Um, but he has also an, an, an amazing sprint. He's tactically savvy as well. Uh, so, you know, I think all of those, those those things going together make it ideal for races like Liège and, 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 uh, and Lombardia. He can follow the best on the climbs. He's not, he's not afraid to race, you know, hit out at 30 k's to go or 40 k's to go. And uh, he's got a sprint to finish it off. So, you know, those two things are quite unique, being able to climb and also being able to sprint and, you know, if you just look, it was a tire difference between him and Van Aert at the Olympic Games. And Van Aert has won bunch sprints in Tour de France. So, you know, you can see how fast Tadej is if he wants to be. And I think the, the two unique qualities that sort of go together make a, you know, make an ideal man for those races. You know, he doesn't need three days to warm up like some stage race riders do. Um, and he can be a one-day rider as well as a Grand Tour rider. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. All our listeners can get 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. It may surprise you to learn that I am not a world-class athlete. I've never been a world-class athlete and I never will be. I know people say it's never too late, but in my case, I think it probably is. There's, a, unfortunately, a lack of talent holding me back. So I can't really talk with any authenticity about how science and sports products can fuel me to win a tour stage or a six-hour classic. But what I can talk with some authority about and authenticity about is what things taste like because I do like things that taste nice and when I was out on my ride today I took with me one of the Go Energy Bakes uh, this one was the strawberry flavor one um, it really closely resembles normal food as I think of it uh, it's a it's an energy bar but it could just easily be um, the sort of snack type bar that you might have mid-morning or mid-afternoon with a cup of tea or coffee uh, these are filled with a a sweet filling in this case a strawberry filling and I was looking on the packet and because I've been paying more attention to what I've been consuming over recent weeks, um, I took in the nutritional information, which is not really something I've ever uh, looked into too much in the past. Each 50 gram bar contains 190 calories. And so they really hit the spot when out on a couple of hours ride. Um, I like to just have one halfway round, knowing that I'm not going to have that horrible empty feeling on the way back because there's nothing I dislike more than riding in the rain and cold at this time of year than riding in the rain and cold whilst feeling hungry. So uh, these energy bakes are invaluable. Um, I've got to be honest, though, the strawberry one is not my favorite. I'm, I'm not a big fan of strawberry flavored things. So um, it's just a personal preference. Taste is obviously a personal preference. Um, I like everything else about it. The the, the outside is nice and uh, the texture is nice. They're easy to eat. Um, but give me the tiramisu one every day of the week as far as I'm concerned. Well, Tom Scoyne mentioned Tom Pidcock as a potential 
winner of all five monuments in his career. I mean, Pidcock is really just starting out. He's experiencing these races for the first time. And well, one of the things that struck me was that we, we have these assumptions about the races, don't we? We think that a light rider like Julian Alaphilippe or Tom Pidcock might not have what it takes to win a race like Paris-Roubaix, for example, or we maybe think that the, the hills of Il-Lombardia are perhaps going to be just a bit much for Wout van Aert or uh, Matthew van der Poel. Who knows? I mean, the, I think the biggest challenge is that the, the kind of spread over the calendar um, requires riders to really focus and target. And I suppose once you've ticked off three or four, then hunting the final one uh, as uh, you know, Philippe Gilbert has, has tried to do, you know, by focusing um, on the, the, the one missing piece in the jigsaw, you know, becomes more logical. But I mean, I don't, it's not something that necessarily the ebb and flow of a season necessarily washes a rider's way unless they, they go seeking um, winning all five. I would say that, you know, you talk about the idea that light riders can't win Paris-Roubaix or don't win Paris-Roubaix. That's pretty evidence-based. Uh, I think we discussed this a couple of years ago. I think the last rider under 70 kilos to win Paris-Roubaix, I mean, Philippe Gilbert was around 70 kilos, but Bernard Hinault um, was around 70 kilos um, when he won in 1981, but they have been very few and far behind far between absolutely yeah um but um what's really fascinating as we've watched this season unfold is how i think lizzie no... i think lizzie lizzie Dagnan's is definitely kilos. under 70 kilos i think well but that i mean that... joking apart it does sort of you know it is evidence-based as you say um daniel but there's an awful team selections are, are often maybe um you know riders abilities and cobbles are assessed on on their weight maybe more than mm. more than evidence the, in a yeah way. So i'm, I'm saying a self-fulfilling prophecy the assumption or, isn't just from you know people like us in the media or from the fans or it's from the teams and the riders themselves i mean if if we see a situation where tom pidcock for example is lining up uh, for Paris bay intending to try and win it i mean that changes the game slightly doesn't it and i do think that the arrival of the women's Paris bay has perhaps you know begun a process of redefining um what uh, what Paris Roubaix actually is, and and even just hearing, um, you know, Alan Piper talk about Pogacar, um, you know, you know, he's going to have to cope with the cobbles in the Tour de France. Who knows what uh, what that might spark in in his mind? But the one thing I was going to say just before we move on from the monuments is that we've got these riders that are, are all of an incredible stature. Um, you know, that they're all excellent at. Uh, specific things but also generally and it just feels to me that they're all sort of treading on each other's turf and that there's a real sort of battle for um, you know who is who is best at what and there's no desire to kind of carve things up and 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 sort of uh, you know stick to their own ground um, it, it does feel like they're going to be going toe to toe with each other over the next two three years and and we might see some uh, some surprising battles in some surprising places so we hear from Tom Pidcock. Um, the three of us put some questions to him. He's currently in Miami, I think, in America, certainly. Um, and here is what he had to say to some of our questions. One of the breakthrough stars, I suppose, of, of the year when it came to the, the classics. So here he is, Tom Pidcock. Tom 
Tom, coming out of the cyclocross season where you'd gone head-to-head with Wout Van Aert and Matthew Van Der Poel many times, were you confident of stepping into the classics races at a similarly high level or were you initially just thinking about learning the ropes? Actually, it's kind of a funny question to ask. It seems like such a long time ago. But um, for sure, when I first moved into the elites, I felt much more comfortable when those guys were racing because they were a really good benchmark for me to to compare against and I, I knew like where my level was compared to them. So when they were in the race, I kind of knew that well, those guys would be at the front. So I knew, yeah, I could be at the front or, or close to, but I certainly was learning the ropes for sure. Like my experience now in these races um, and how important it is to use team to be able to, to compete at the end of a race is really important. All the time learning little things from riders who are much more experienced than me. So it was about learning. I was I was never the outright leader, but I was kind of given a free role in most races to see, yeah, just how I'd get on. Was there a moment during opening weekend that's Het Newsblad and Kerner Brussels Kerner when you thought, okay, I belong here? Yeah, in opening weekend it was it was a good start actually. I mean, I, yeah, I got a podium in the, in the second day. I certainly felt like I was not near my best level at that, but it was it was a hard race, especially the second day in uh, Kerner. Yeah, I was, I was tired. I was not feeling so good, but yeah, I, I think I, I kind of just got through the race, got there and then, yeah, got on the right wheel for the sprint and ended up, was I second or third? I don't even remember, but um, yeah, it was certainly a good way to start. It showed me kind of, yeah, actually I can compete at this level. Gave me confidence straight away. At Strade Bianche, you were in the move at the end with Alaphilippe van der Poel van Aert, Bernal Pogacar, the world champion, classics winners, tour winners, a Giro winner. Did you have a moment where you looked around and took in who you were with? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That 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 final of Strada. At one point, I certainly did look around. And I was like, "Bloody hell, this is some right company to be in here." Um, I kind of just felt proud that I was in that company. And at that point, yeah, I was thinking, "Yeah, how do I win?" But more importantly, I was thinking, "Yeah, how do I save my energy to, yeah, stay with these guys until the finish?" Because yeah, I mean, I was being realistic and I don't think then I was at the level to be able to beat them. So it was just about the best possible result, really. At Milan San Remo, you made a move as the race was coming off the Poggio before Jasper Stuyven went clear. And after the race, Rod Ellingworth told me that perhaps the adrenaline of the moment had tempted you to make a move a bit too soon. What was your thinking at the time? Yeah, I think it was in San Remo when I was at the front there, it was definitely a case of... Uh, lack of patience I think um, yeah inexperienced lack of patience I think I was I was going okay I was not quite as strong when uh, Alaphilippe went on the climb but yeah once I came back and I got a bit excited and thought you know maybe they just let my wheel go down descent but you know that was never really going to happen I mean Wout and Matthew they, they look at me a, a lot I think and mark me from yeah you know from crossing so yeah it was it was stupid tactics really if I'd played it like Stoven then, yeah, maybe I would have been in Stoven's position. But I also had the opportunity to go after him, and then I, I didn't fully commit to it. So I made a lot of mistakes in that race, but also also learned a lot, and especially like next year when I will be stronger. I, I already am stronger, so, yeah, I think it would be different with a bit, bit more experience and being a bit stronger. What did you learn at the three Belgian cobbled classics, E3, Duas and Dwarf Londres, and the Tour of Flanders? Yeah, cobbled classics were probably where I learned the most. I mean, they were the first races I did. 
with the team in in the World Tour. So, I mean, E3, I was ill. I had like a cold, so I, I shouldn't have started that one. That was a, a good uh, lesson. Um, and then, yeah, I think it's all about just saving energy in the, in the classics. It's always, always about saving energy, saving energy until the last bit because, yeah, it's the guy with the most energy left at the end, really. Tell us about the finish at Brabantse Pale. Were you happy that Van Aert opened it up? It looked, dare I say it, comfortable at the end, but were you confident of getting around him? Yeah, I was happy to for Wout to lead it out. I mean, I think that's the hardest job when you're in a small group like that to lead it out. Um, and yeah, that, that, I mean, there was no tactics there. Once the sprint started, it started. And I was just the strongest at the end of the race. Do you watch the races back? And if so, what bits do you pay most attention to and what are you specifically looking for? I don't watch races back as much as I should. Honestly, I, I should watch them more and learn more. Um, it's something that I, I, I keep telling myself I need to do, but uh, I haven't got around to it. So I, I also kind of, I don't like watching myself like talk on a video or anything like that. So maybe it's that I don't like watching myself race. Um, it, it's something that I, I need, to, need to get better at. To, you can't really learn from when you're looking at your own perspective, but when you see it from a different person's perspective, you can, you can learn a lot and see it from a different angle. How is the Ineos Classics team shaping up for 2022? Um, the Classic team for next year, well, I'm not entirely entirely sure, to be honest. Um, I still, we don't we don't have the best Classics team in the world. That's that's for sure. But we're we're trying to get some more guys in to to kind of bolster the squad. Ben Turner is coming in, super strong guy. It'll be a super good help in there, yeah, pushing the wind. Yeah, yeah, Magnus, Magnus Sheffield also is coming. Viviani's coming back, so yeah, we're certainly we're certainly trying to to strengthen it a bit. But yeah, we'll see next year about how that goes and thinking of yeah, a few more years we need for to recruit some more riders and and learn and learn. So uh, yeah, we'll see. What are your specific objectives next season? Next year, I want. I think I'm going to be riding the Giro. I want to try and focus on that. Um, obviously, the the classics. I'm going to focus on. And then I'll switch to mountain bike and try and win mountain bike worlds. And then I, I'm I'm told the road race is going to be flat, um, which is a bit disappointing um, at the worlds in Australia. So I'm not sure whether I'll go to that. I mean, it would be nice to go to Australia, but. Um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. And obviously, obviously the crossworlds. I keep forgetting that next year kind of seemed like this year. But yeah, that's that's the, the plans for next year. That was Tom Pidcock with uh, some interesting comments um, on his team. Uh, you know, saying that they need to be stronger uh, in the classics. I think Ethan Hater is going to be a significant rider for them. But I actually thought. They were pretty strong in the, the the classics, a lot of the classics this year. Even if they didn't get um, the results uh, in some of them, they had numbers there. And a guy like Carapaz, uh, you know, it can be a factor in some of these races too. Um, there are, there were, of course, uh, lots of one-day races that, that that aren't monuments. Just before we go on, Rich, a question came into my head when I was thinking about this episode. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I said that kind of um, perhaps counterintuitively, if I was Tadej Pogacar, I'd rather ride against Egan Bernal than 
Richard Carapaz because of Carapaz's just tenacity and it would be quite uncomfortable to be up against a guy like that over three weeks who would would never let you feel as though the job was done. Who would you least like to come up against in the classics, Van der Poel or Van Aert? Oh... Well, I mean, I'm not. No, I'm not going to have much chance against either of them, to be perfectly honest <laughs> with you, Daniel. I mean, oh, um, I'm also yeah. perhaps a bit too light now. Yeah, yeah, not not no more pirate bay for you, uh, <laughs> Lionel. Um, my goodness, I don't, I don't think uh, tenacity is either of of those two sort of defining traits in the way that I think it is Carapaz is. Um, I think you know Van der Poel is either going to completely blow you out of the water or you know he's mm. not really going to be a factor um so, and, and yeah, van Aert, because yeah and van art you can sort of with van art it's going to be you know he's, he's sort of going to bleed you out it's going to be death by a thousand you, you know, can pulls. use you can use van art's strength to your advantage i think sometimes mm. um and van der poel it depends what day you get him on you know he can be absolutely unbeatable or quite vulnerable um so uh, th- th- and that that's the beauty of it really at the moment um they they both they they they're they're both fallible you know they're they're not unbeatable um you know it makes these races more interesting more unpredictable than say a, a tour de france with a very clear favorite like Tadej pogacar i also wonder from the mental point of view i mean we would listening back to uh, the preview of the Milan Sanremo episode where rather flippantly um, I made a comment uh, in response to Daniel's point about whether Van der Poel would get you know, bored by racing over six and a half hours. You know, just, just the mental um, concentration, the mental focus required for what is on the face of it quite a, a straightforward and, and for a lot of the day, cautious race. And I do think that, you know, we see the best of, you know, Van Aert, Van der Poel, um, and probably in the future we'll see the best from Pidcock if they um, are allowed to kind of indulge um, other things, you know, whether it's mountain biking for uh, Pidcock and, uh, and Van der Poel or cyclocross for all three of them. Just, just keeping games. it fresh, not getting, yeah, not getting, uh, <laughs> not getting kind of funneled into the, the, the conventional way of doing things that, that, um... Well, it's funny. It's funny you should say that because, well, you actually said in that episode, Lionel, um, when when Daniel suggested he might he might get bored, you said bored. He doesn't have to watch it. He just has to ride it. <laughs> uh, um, I, I spoke to somebody last night who's just back from Mallorca with Vanderpool and Alps and Fenix, and uh, he said that Vanderpool even gets bored on training rides, and that he'd set off ahead of the Alps and Fenix riders with the Canyon SRAM riders, and about. 10 kilometers into the ride van der Poel came flying past on his own having attacked his teammates uh, while leaving the hotel so he gets bored uh, training as well and likes to spice it up a bit apparently so he's in Mallorca at the moment um I was introducing the non-monuments the other one day races of which there have been lots of really exciting uh, races this year but before we hear our selection from those races let's hear again from tom squeenge the uh trek segafredo rider with his favorite non-monuments i remember benoit cosnefois he won uh, against two teammates ala philippe and 
Honoré. So that's kind of cool always. Uh, I think it was in Plouet, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Dylan Van Barl in one of the Belgian one days uh, had an incredible ride where he was solo for what seemed like eternity. I think it was Dvarstor Vlaanderen. It was definitely before uh, one of the before Flanders races. Yeah. I th- well, actually, also in uh, San Sebastian, that was also a good battle where Nielsen Paulus, I think you wouldn't pick him as the winner before the race, for sure. But even in that final sprint, you would not pick him as a winner. Uh, you'd think Mahorch would have the better of him, but uh, he pulled it off. And for one, it was impressive just the way he did it, but also that was it was his first uh, big one-day race win. And uh, just the way he did it, that uh, definitely bodes well for him. Hopefully his motivation is uh, bigger for the one-day races now, and hopefully we will see him battle battle more in, uh, in the one-day races. Well, Tom Squeenge with uh, a great selection of races there, actually, one or two of which I'd forgotten because there are some races that, you know, maybe clash with a Grand Tour or something else and and barely get mentioned, if at all, in the podcast because we just don't have the bandwidth for it. Um, one of those races actually is Trobro Leon, who, which sort of passed me by this year, but I watched it the other day and it was a, a brilliant race. Connor Swift is a favourite of ours, of course, Archaea Samsic rider, because he has kept an audio diary at the Tour de France the last couple of years, very entertaining audio diarist, and a brilliant winner of that race. I mean, he started to really perform quite well in some of these races this year, and he was a great winner of that race, but he almost did an Alaphilippe, um, threw his arms up a little bit too soon, and had quite an agonizing wait before he was declared the winner, um, and he won the the baby pig that you win. You've been to Trobro Leon, haven't you? It's interesting as well because that race could be on the, the cusp of change having been not bought, but but certainly ASO have an interest in it now, don't they? Baby pigs for the best Breton rather than the, the, oh, the sorry. winner. But um, If you're a Yorkshireman, you don't get the you baby get, pig. You get to pet the baby pig on the on the podium if you wish. I There's think. certainly a poster being launched with Connor Swift with a baby pig. They both feature in the poster for next year's Trobro Leon. But a very entertaining race in a beautiful part of the world over these lovely uh, dirt roads. And now part of ASO's family as well, so likely to um, perhaps have a higher profile going forward. I mean, of all the, the one-day races that weren't monuments, Strada Bianca probably stands out for most people as the outstanding race but what are your other picks chaps uh, there were a few that stuck in my memory race the european road race championships was a bit of a crackerjack of a race um that really sort of ignited by the french team early on won by sonny colbrelli and paritor um on the restyled paritor route through the vineyard pass won by arnold demar in quite unconventional style um not a bunch of print that was that was exciting. Can you remember the GP Miguel Indurain? And who won yeah, that? Yeah, well, Alejandro Valverde. Won Alejandro Valverde. Uh, and um, won in brilliant fashion, Yeah, no? in swashbuckling fashion. Yeah. Um, he sort of took on the Astana pair, Luis Leon Sanchez and Lutsenko, and, and really worked them over. One to um, watch for the future, maybe, Valverde. I don't know, <laughs> up and coming. Or, right or Luis Leon Sanchez. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> The the Giro dell'Emilia that was just a classic classic textbook roglification. Um, we all thought he was going to win Lombardy after that. He did not. 
And as a one-day race, it's not a one-day race, but it, it is. it behaves like a one-day race. It walks like a one-day race, quacks like a one-day race. Stage one of the Tour de France won by Junior Alaphilippe. It's a one-day I mean, race. Or all, all the first nine stages of the Tour de France, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, but stage one in particular, because the yellow jersey is up for grabs at the end, it is almost like mm. riding, racing for a trophy. And it was a, a just a, an absolutely breathtaking finale. Um, the, the one day of the year, certainly, when we saw Alaphilippe at his absolute best. Well, certainly not the one day, one of two days, because we saw him... We saw him riding pretty well at the Worlds, didn't we? Well, I guess I'll go for Remco Evenepoel. And I've got a, a tie, really, two races that he won. One was uh, the Driven Course in Belgium, which, if you remember, there was a, a vehicle fire close to the course and they had to stop everyone and neutralise the race. And the other one was uh, one of those Italian races, Daniel, the Coppa Bernocchi, where he went for uh, a big, long-range attack and won by almost two minutes um again i think that's also a nod to the kind of the generation of riders who um on occasion need to get themselves out of the peloton just because it's uh it's something to do it's something to occupy their minds rather than just sort of riding along in the bunch they you know they 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 know that uh, they're capable of um, riding at a, a very high level for 50 60 kilometers and and give it a go and i think we've seen a fair bit of that this year and maybe um maybe last year we put it down to sort of um you know post-covid lockdown enthusiasm to get back to racing but i think we are seeing a bit of a trend here where riders aren't scared to go um either solo or in small groups from early on or as we saw at the world championships really kick the race off you know 100 kilometers 150 kilometers earlier than perhaps we would expect to see things really ignite and uh, that's a trend worth watching next year i think olympic road race as well worth a mention richard carapaz did there what he tried to do at liege bastion liege um very very worthy winner of that race um and we haven't i suppose mentioned the world championships much but i, I was there in leuven as as you were too daniel and the race itself was was amazing brilliant but the atmosphere was sensational and to be in love and there on that day was a real privilege and um that that was the one day race that i was at that i most enjoyed and found most enthralling and stimulating for all the excitement the attacking the drama the the intrigue of Evnepoel, what he was up to, the the sort of politics of the Belgian team that were playing out almost on the road as the race was going on, and then Philippe at the end with that uh, incredible attack. You know, it's funny because earlier in the year we had seen we were we were talking after Torreno as if Philippe had become almost the bridesmaid in a way. You know, at Strada Bianca at Torreno, um, he, he wasn't. He didn't seem to be quite capable of matching Van der Poel and Van Aert when they really brought the heavy artillery uh, out. Whereas, you know, at the Worlds in uh, in Leuven, uh, Van der Poel was a bit below par having had an injury. Van Aert was the big favourite and had a very strong Belgian team. But in the end, um, nobody could live with Philippe when he decided to, to go. When he I, did. I think there, there is still a type of finale, a type of kill, a type of gradient, um, an effort where Alaphilippe is, is the gold standard. Do you um, think also a type of occasion? Because, you know, I'm thinking stage one of the Tour de France, also the Tour de France last year, 
the worlds this year and last year. There's a certain occasion as well that seems to bring out the best in Alaphilippe. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I mean, he's certainly not sort of fading, going to be fading from view anytime soon, is he? Uh, I think he will. Still I mean, be. Alaphilippe would not put in his best performance of his career in a stage in Terreno Adriatico, would he? I mean, that's not meant to be a criticism of Van der Poel because we like to see people racing in a, in a full-blooded way, even in races like that. In fact, that's to their credit. You know, when we see Pogacar as well is, is not somebody who's going to just save it for the big stage. We see him race spectacularly in, in smaller races as well. But I mean, Philippe is a, is a showman. Yeah, and I, he was actually quite explicit when in talking this year about the, the problems he had with being world champion and wearing the rainbow jersey and the pressure that he felt. He talked about this all year and um, how, you, you know, he felt the need to honour every occasion, but in particular, as you say, Rich, the, the big races. And often, as I said earlier, we saw him not at his best, but still able to impact races in quite significant ways. I mentioned the Koppenberg earlier in the Tour of Flanders. And I suppose that's, you know, that's a measure of, of just how, how good he is, that even 80%, 90%, he can do things that other riders need to be at 100% um, to, to do. It's going to be interesting this year to see whether... You know, that pressure, that burden that he, he said he did feel in 2021, whether he'll he'll be a bit relieved of that in his second year, um, second consecutive year as the world champion. And he, he will feel a little bit unshackled. Just before we wrap things up for episode one in our Anus Galacticus series of five podcasts building up to Christmas, um, any writers that showed uh, something this year for the future, Daniel, anyone we should be keeping an eye on? Well, just in thinking about the future, Rich, in 2022, the classic season, one day races. I mean, I said there, Alaphilippe, he will be in the rainbow bands again. So, you know, depending on your, your point of view, that's either added pressure or an added stimulus. I'm going to be, I'm interested, I'm going to be very curious to see how Jumbo Visma riding the classics next year. And, you know, they have strengthened, they have addressed one of the weaknesses we talked about um, of only having Van Aert in certain races. They've taken Christophe Laporte from Cofidis and I think they've got pretty high hopes for him in the classics. And um, Van der Poel, we expect to be strong again. But just in terms of some of the individuals' performances that people might have missed, um, fledgling classic stars that dropped their first or showed their first sort of glimmers of promise this year. Um, a few are, are picked out. Um, well, I mentioned the criminally rated Anthony Georges, not a, a young rider, he's in his late 20s, but I think he will be uh, someone who's going to contend over the coming years. Stan the Wolf impressed me just as a sort of domestique for, I suppose, the slightly disappointing leadership duo of Oliver Narsen and Greg Van Avermaet at um, AG Tour La Mondiale. But not many people talked about Stan the Wolf, young Belgian rider this year, but he had a really good Vuelta, won the Boucle de Lorne in France, and he, I think he's going to be a big rider in the classics in the coming years. Fred Wright, the British rider. There were a couple of um, British riders, young British riders who caught the eye. Um, Fred Wright, again, not someone who finished, you know, in top 10 or 20 of, of big classics, but he impressed everyone at his team, Bahrain victorious. Finished the Tour de France uh, to age, I think he was just turned 22 when he finished the Tour de France, finished Roubaix. So he, um, he impressed me. Um, another one, the Luxembourg champion, Kevin Genietz um, at Groupama FDJ. He's, he's on a sort of slow 
path, a, a very gradual um, path there, mainly working as an understudy to Stefan Kung. But he was he was actually up the front at uh, Strade Bianche. He was one of the last guys to get dropped before the Galacticos went away. So he's someone who I think will um, will slowly edge towards the very front of um, the, the Cobble Classics in the next year or two. Uh, Quinn Simmons, um, again, if you look at his results, there's a lot of DNFs in the classics, but I think we all know that how talented he is. He is, and he was um, he was there in that exalted company at Strade Bianche. Was very strong at the Vuelta, and is incredibly young. He's only just turned twenty, or he turned twenty in the summer. And the last one we talked about, uh, Alaphilippe, and well, how strong the Koenig Quick Step were will continue to be and i think he will be helped next year by andrea bagioli the italian who looks one of the most promising italian riders out there at the moment and um, he had to miss the arden classics this year because of a um a crash early in the season but i think he will be one of the strongest riders in the arden in 2022 so there are a few names to watch over the next few months lots of names and uh yeah well as i said in this series, we will be doing a press conference episode uh, in a few weeks. Please do send us your questions. Contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Send them as an audio file, uh, anything at all, um, and uh, we'll be happy to try and answer as many as possible. Uh, we'll be back next week looking back on the Grand Tours um, and uh, stage races from this year. Um, but that's all for this week. Thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, chaps. Good luck with your tapering. <laughs>